Hi, this is Steve Held from Santa Rosa, California. This podcast was recorded at... 2.05 on Monday, May 15th. Things may change by the time you hear it. Keep up with all of NPR's political coverage at npr.org or the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with some answers to your questions about the firing of James Comey and a few other topics. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress for NPR. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Scott Horsley. I cover the White House. And I'm Carrie Johnson, the justice correspondent. All right, everybody, it has been less than a week since President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, but Washington news cycles are even more advanced than dog years, so it already feels like it's been months. Uh, You've all sent in tons of questions about what happened, what it could mean, what comes next. And Carrie Johnson is just the person to answer them. How's it going? More or less okay. I guess uh, we're halfway through the afternoon, and who the heck knows what else might happen today. I feel like news o'clock usually is a little later in the day, though. (laughs) So we'll see if we're back in your podcast feed later on today. Um, But, Carrie, what we did was we got so many listener questions that we just kind of combined all of them here to to Comey-palooza. Ready? As ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) All right. So let's start with this one. When Comey was fired for two days, the White House said this was all about the Hillary Clinton investigation and how Comey botched the rollout and that Trump was simply following the advice of Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Then President Trump speaks to NBC News and says basically the opposite. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, This Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse. So the first is, Kerry, what are the implications of Trump saying that, that that the Russia investigation was on his mind? Well, in addition to kind of hanging out to dry a whole bunch of people in the White House, including the vice president who had been out publicly talking about the DOJ recommendation being the basis for this firing, it also cast a, a cloud over the current Justice Department leadership. So now Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general for just three weeks, has become a national news figure. And And uh, a man who has a lot of answers to questions of people all over the country and in the U.S. Senate have, Rosenstein is going before the entire Senate later this week to try to answer questions about the removal of Comey the second time he's appeared on the Hill. He'd already uh, briefed the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee chairs behind closed doors last week. Yeah, but there's still a lot of concerns about the role he played in Comey's ouster, what the reasoning was for that ouster. Remember, James Comey was leading leading the FBI and leading the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections and possible ties between the Trump campaign and people in Russia. So the president uh, admitted to NBC News he was thinking about all those things when he decided to give James Comey the axe, something that hasn't happened since 1993. Well, and zooming out a bit, I'd also add that this kind of hammers home the idea that you know, what the White House spokespeople say, and perhaps even what the vice president says, is subject to change until Donald Trump has the final word. And I believe we've seen that in a few other cases before this. So this just kind of adds to that continuing narrative. Trump came out last week and said, maybe we should just stop having these briefings and I'll just uh, either (laughs) I'll do it myself every other week or we'll put something out in writing. And one other thing that I want to ask about that Trump said or rather tweeted, this is Friday morning. Trump tweets, quote, James Comey better hope there are no, quote, tapes of our conversations before he starts leaking to the press, exclamation point. 
So this came after the New York Times and others had reported a lot of pushback against the narrative that Trump had put forward about his meetings with Comey, particularly that Comey had assured him he wasn't under investigation. So, Carrie, two questions. First to the tweet, it sounds like there could be some serious political and legal ramifications here. Yeah, legal, I'm not so sure, Scott, although uh, Democratic politicians, national politicians, immediately seized on this Trump tweet to make the claim that the president was intimidating a possible witness against him, the FBI director, James Comey. That could carry some legal ramifications. Basically Um, saying, watch what you say about me. Yeah, issuing a threat, a direct threat to the FBI director. Um, But from my sources, the FBI director is not so scared and uh, eventually is going to come out and tell his side of the story, either to Congress or to reporters or all of the above. Uh, So there are as many uh, political ramifications here as there are legal ones. Uh, Members of Congress from the House Judiciary Committee, Democrats and some senators as as well, have already written the White House, ordering the White House to preserve any recordings or transcripts of conversations he had. And if the White House uh, does not comply with those orders, this president and this White House could be in a world of legal hurt, a world of legal trouble for failing to comply with orders from members of Congress not to destroy documents in the course of an investigation. And the White House has been very vague about whether there are, in fact, tapes or some other kind of recordings of these conversations. Because didn't Press Secretary Sean Spicer not deny the existence of these tapes when he was asked about it in a briefing? He was asked about it repeatedly, didn't answer the question, and said, I'm moving on. Right. And the Wall Street Journal reported just a couple of days ago that some associates of Donald Trump, before he was in the White House, this is, uh, said they saw him use recording devices to record phone calls in the past. In addition, another person said that he, and this is from the Wall Street Journal itself, that he knew that Mr. Trump had recorded a conversation with him because it was later entered into evidence in a lawsuit once again, before Trump was in the White House. But, you know, this does show that he had a pattern of doing this in the past. So so one other thing in all of this, before we get to our many, many other questions about what's going on right now, uh, a lot of the Comey-Trump interaction centers around this dinner that the two supposedly had in the first few days of, of the Trump administration. What do we know about this dinner and, and what was said or not said at the dinner? Yeah, this dinner happened January 27th, shortly after the inauguration. Um, President Trump has told interviewers that uh, James Comey basically invited himself to dinner at the White House uh, as part of an to keep his job. Now, I'm hearing from sources close to Comey that things did not happen that way. In fact, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, told a lot of cable TV networks over the weekend that uh, he talked to Comey the day of the dinner. Comey was reluctant to go, thinking it would cast aspersions on his independence, the independence of the bureau, but that the White House had invited him and he didn't feel he could say no to the president. So already there is some friction between those two accounts. Once again, is is this kind of a dinner unusual for a, for an FBI director and a new president? Meetings are not unusual. I'm not aware of former FBI director Mueller going over to the White House willy-nilly for, for dinners with President Obama or President George W. Bush. But mm-hmm. uh, then again, um, former FBI director James Comey is a much more outgoing kind of guy mm-hmm. than Robert Mueller was and a much more high-profile guy, in part because when you're six feet, eight inches tall, you kind of get recognized all over town.
home. Yeah, not a problem that that I have or actually anybody <laughs> in this room has, but 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 yeah. Okay, so they're looking for a new FBI director right now. Where do things stand with that? You know, President Trump was just asked a question about this moving through the White House. He told the pool reporters there that things are moving rapidly. Earlier, he said he might have an FBI director pick by the end of the week when he leaves for his first overseas trip. If recent history is a guide, that would be very fast. But a whole bunch of DOJ reporters spent Saturday camped out at the building, observing eight people going in and out for interviews. Some are current and former FBI officials. Some are political figures like John Cornyn, Texas Senator, Republican, uh, former Representative Mike Rogers, another Republican who had been an FBI agent and is the choice of the FBI Agents Association. But there's a lot of questions about whether you should elevate somebody to be the FBI director who has a background in a political office, in part because these things are so sensitive. Mm -hmm. And the whole justice system is operating under what I would call a near crisis in confidence. So to inject another um, bit of politics into the equation might be problematic. Now, Now, a lot of these agency heads are often, you know, people with political backgrounds, former governors, senators, things like that. It's true that nobody's ever run the FBI who was a career politician, right? They've all come from within the ranks. Yeah, you know, you're not going to believe this. Well, maybe you will. There have only <laughs> been there have only been seven directors of the FBI in FBI history. Well, I guess because one of them stayed around forever. Yeah. Of course, that's J. Edgar Hoover, the guy the building is named after, someone who's really looms large for positive and negative reasons in FBI history. Yeah, a man who amassed enormous power, more power some would argue, than the presidents he allegedly served. Um, and, you know, uh, somebody, James Comey, to be honest, was wary of. Comey kept in his office some documents um, involving the FBI wiretap of Martin Luther King Jr. as a reminder that these jobs carry a lot of authority and you should use it wisely and well. Wow. Um, Scott Horsley, a question for you. So many Democrats are now calling. Well, they've been calling for a while, but they've amped up their calls for a special prosecutor in this case. That's separate from the independent congressional committee that they want put together to look into this special prosecutor call. What exactly is that? How does it work? What what are we talking about here when we say a special prosecutor should take this investigation over? Well, when you say special prosecutor, the name that comes to mind is is Archibald Cox. That was the special prosecutor who investigated uh, Richard Nixon in the Watergate scandal. He was appointed by the attorney general and later dismissed uh, by the attorney general. A couple of attorney generals had to be fired in order to get that dismissal through. That's what's the episode that's known as the Saturday Night Massacre, to which some people have likened Jim Comey's firing. Then in the wake of the Watergate scandal, Congress passed a law that allowed for something called an independent counsel. Uh, And this person would be appointed uh, not by the attorney general, uh, but rather by a three-judge panel. And the idea was to have a little bit of uh, insulation from the executive branch of the government if you were investigating somebody maybe in the executive branch of the government. So that the president can't fire the person investigating it. That's right. And the the most famous independent counsel, of course, was Kenneth Starr, whose investigation led to the impeachment of Bill Clinton. That law lapsed in 1999, and since then, we have had something called special counsels who are, again, appointed by the attorney general. So all of these are different flavors of somebody to go out there and investigate somebody in the executive branch or with with whom there might be a conflict of interest with having the normal investigative arm of the federal government do it. 
And we should say, you have Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, pouring cold water on all these ideas and saying, look, we have uh, the FBI is conducting its own investigation. We have the, the Senate Intelligence Committee conducting its investigation. There's no reason to launch a new probe. That would just be one too many cooks in the kitchen. Let's let the Intelligence Committee do its work. Right. And uh, actually, the next question was about those those House and Senate investigations. And I think we've answered a lot of it. But one thing that has been a dynamic that I don't think has been fully appreciated as they've gone forward is how much the House and Senate investigations are basically parasitical to the FBI investigation. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that the FBI... No, you mean parasitic in the best possible way. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, de- they're dependent on right, the FBI to do a lot of legwork. Right, because the FBI is out there kind of aggressively doing the investigating, and then the committees are going to the FBI, the CIA, to other agencies, and looking at the raw intelligence they've scooped together. Now, that has been the case so far. Last week, the Senate committee kind of kicked things up to a different gear by issuing its first subpoena in years uh, to Michael Flynn, former National Security Advisor, subject of many a podcast in your podcast (laughs) feed, um, asking for documents related to the investigation. So that was a sign they are kind of being more aggressive themselves, but they just don't simply have the manpower or the investigators to do what the FBI is, is already doing. Yeah, and that's why a lot of these people are meeting behind closed doors, these people in the Senate, uh, with current law enforcement officials to engage in what they call deconfliction. That's a really boring way of saying, listen, we don't want to get under your feet. We don't want to impact any kind of possible criminal investigation going on. So you tell us the lanes and the and you tell us how many bodies you can help and what kind of information you can pass to us in the Senate. Uh, so we have one more specific question um, that we have. Celia, a Canadian in America. Interesting title there, Celia. The Canadians among us. <laughs> wrote to say, um, so this is from Celia. I've been really confused by the coverage of the Comey firing. Isn't it possible to think that James Comey acted poorly and also think that firing him at this time was odd. A lot of coverage makes these two ideas sound diametrically opposed. I guess that kind of gets really to the heart of this, doesn't it? Yeah, not opposed at all. Uh, You know, in fact, a lot of people on Capitol Hill and elsewhere read that three-page memo last week from Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, which excoriated James Comey for his conduct in the Clinton email investigation, and came away thinking, huh, James Comey did violate a lot of longstanding norms and policies in the Justice Department and the FBI about not beating up people you decide not to charge, not reopening an investigation so close to an election, not putting your thumb on the scale before people go to the polls to vote. But the question was, why did you fire him last week instead of doing it in January or instead of waiting until after the Justice Department Inspector General, which is investigating all these things, comes out with its own findings, which would be in some ways a more reasonable and appropriate time to get rid of the FBI director if you wanted to do that. And I think the most shocking thing to me politically to happen in all of this was all of the indications that the Trump White House was genuinely shocked at the Democratic reaction because they thought that the Democrats had criticized Comey so much they would either not have a problem with this move or they wouldn't have much leg to stand on. But very quickly, starting with Chuck Schumer holding an Insta press conference, they said this is not about the Hillary Clinton investigation. This is all about the current investigation. Yeah, bringing us back to the start of this podcast, which is, uh, you know, you can rely on Rod Rosenstein for three days, but when the president himself says, no, nah, I fired him because of Russia. You, <laughs> you got problems. Yeah. You got problems. Well, since we've come full circle, maybe it's time to put a dot on that and say thank you, Carrie, as always. 
Maybe one day you'll stay for the full podcast. Today is not to... that day. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thank you. All right. As Carrie mm-hmm. picks up all of her notes and leaves the studio, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a few more questions. If you can believe them, there are questions that are not about James Comey. We will talk about that. Get out. <laughs> Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sunbasket. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook nutritionist-approved meals in your own kitchen with organic, non-GMO ingredients sourced from farms and fishermen and sent directly to your door. Choose from paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, breakfast, and even family options. With pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow directions, you can prepare each meal in just 30 minutes. Get your first three meals free at sunbasket.com politics. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and I am excited to introduce you to my friend Mindy Thomas. She is the co-host of NPR's incredible new podcast for kids. It's called Wow in the World, and every week we'll take you and your kids on amazing adventures through the world of wonder and mystery and imagination. Subscribe to Wow in the World however you get your podcasts. All right, we are back. A reminder, you can write us with your questions and comments at nprpolitics at npr.org. That is also where you can send your timestamp that we use at the top of the show. We cannot answer every note that comes there, but we do read every single one of them, and it helps us to know what you're curious about. And sometimes they're also just funny to read, and we appreciate your funny notes. Before we get back to some questions, Scott, real quick, the White House is getting a notable visitor tomorrow, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. This is complicated, to put it mildly. It is complicated, and it's just gotten more so with Trump's order to uh, arm uh, Kurdish militias fighting in Syria. The U.S. likes those Kurdish militias. They think they're good fighters and can be very helpful in uh, the battle against ISIS in its de facto capital of Raqqa, Syria. Erdogan has a very different view of those Kurdish militias. He's, he's worried about Kurdish separatists in Turkey, so he's, he's unhappy with that. Uh, there's also friction over the Turkish mullah who lives in Pennsylvania, Fatula Galen, who Erdogan sees as an instigator of that failed coup attempt last summer, and Turkey has been petitioning the United States to send uh, Fatula Galen back to Turkey, so that's another... Uh, he lives in the Poconos, right? <laughs> another potential friction yeah. point, that's right, and he probably wants to stay in the Poconos rather than go going back to Turkey to uh, face whatever music Erdogan might have for him there. Uh, And then a potential source of friction, although not much friction with this particular president, is that referendum that Erdogan uh, instigated that vastly expanded his powers uh, as as president of Turkey. I think a lot of foreign policy professionals in the U.S. were a little bit alarmed at that, saw it as kind of an authoritarian move uh, and a, a step away from democracy. Uh, Trump, however, seemed fine with it and called Erdogan to congratulate him after that referendum well, passed. And Trump has proven pretty fine with associating himself with uh, strong men, I suppose is the best catch-all word for it. You know, Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines, uh, El Sisi of Egypt. He has a pattern of praising these guys uh, in some small or large way. So that's something we will keep an eye on. All right, so more questions in the mailbag. This is from Patrick in New York. Hi, I have a question. All right, then let's hear it. (laughs) We keep hearing about Republicans at their town halls where they're attacked by angry constituents. Do Democrats also hold town halls? Are they love fests? Are they just so uneventful that no media show up? Thanks, Patrick. So you're right. This You do have Republicans getting a lot of some super angry town halls, I believe. Scott Detrow, you experienced one last week. Am I yes, wrong? a five hour long super angry town hall. 
Right. And so, you know, what we see right now is sort of the mirror image of what we saw in 2009, right down to the subject matter that is coming up in a lot of these, which is, of course, healthcare. This time it's the reverse. It's like bizarro world. This time it's whether to repeal Obamacare as opposed to pass it. Uh, now, Democrats haven't seen this level of anger, but a few have uh, had some pushback. However, not from the right. Uh, California Senator Dianne Feinstein, this is not quite recently, this is back in February, but she uh, notably had this town hall where people from the group Indivisible, which is a progressive group uh, that is anti-Trump, showed up and kind of castigated her for not being leftist enough. Um, so you have had some Democrats uh, see some pushback in one form or another for what some constituents believe is not being oppositional enough to the Trump agenda. The point here is, uh, in 2009, 2010, a lot of the energy was on the Tea Party side, and the Democrats were were getting the brunt of it. Uh, right. And in 2017, a lot of the energy is on the left, and Republicans are getting the brunt of it. Democrats are also getting some pushback from folks on the left who don't think they're left enough. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Democrats also holding town halls. Uh, next question is from Melissa in Wisconsin. She writes, greetings to my favorite podcast people. Well, thank you. My question is about the travel ban that the president has been trying to get approved. As I understand it, part of the reason for the ban is to halt people from certain countries from entering into the U.S. so that we can get a better plan in place to properly vet them. Since this travel ban has not yet been successful, what, if anything, has been going on behind the scenes to change our current vetting system? Thanks, Melissa. A timely question today. It's very timely. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is holding, uh, held a hearing earlier today on uh, Trump's travel ban 2.0. Uh, and Melissa is absolutely right. That was supposed to be a 90-day freeze on travel from six majority Muslim countries. And the federal government was going to use that 90-day period to improve the vetting of visitors from those countries. Well, it's been 60 of those 90 days have, have passed. What have they done? The answer is not much, uh, and that's because the Hawaiian judge who uh, put a freeze on Travel Ban 2.0, his order was so broad that the government says even the vetting portion, even the, the part of the order that dealt with vetting, uh, has also been put on hold. So they say we took that order seriously and we put our pencils down and haven't done anything. Now, there's another piece of the order that uh, has not been stayed by the courts, and that applies to not just travelers from these six countries, but international travels from all over the world. And the federal government is reviewing its policies for, for how to screen those visitors. Uh, they've looked at things like maybe getting passwords so you can check out the visitors' social media postings, mm -hmm. maybe quizzing them about their ideology. Hmm. Uh, those have been controversial, and there's been some pushback from the travel industry who says this might kind of pull up the welcome mat from visitors. But that uh, vetting review has gone forward, and the Department of Homeland Security is supposed to deliver a report to the president this week about that process. Do we have any sense, and I guess the answer is probably no, uh, what sort of timeline would be reasonable to expect this to work its way up to the Supreme Court? I mean, it's a high-profile national issue that, that directly is pitting the president against federal judges. I have to assume it's something that will interest the court. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have the Ninth Circuit held a hearing today, and when the first travel ban went before the Ninth Circuit, they came back with their ruling upholding the the stay pretty quickly. Last week, we had the Fourth Circuit here on the East Coast uh, reviewing the same travel ban. Uh, if those two circuits came to conflicting conclusions, uh, then you'd really have the Supreme Court would, would almost certainly have to get involved. As it stands, if they came to uh, the same conclusion, 
and say left the travel ban on hold, uh, then the Trump administration could appeal to the Supreme Court. And in that case, maybe the high court would have a little more leeway in whether it decided to take up the case and how quickly. Next question is from Carol in Sochi, Russia, which is great because I love few things in life more than the Winter Olympics. Uh, Carol writes, do you think in the near future that Russia and the United States will be able to soften their relationship? If it is possible, what do you think needs to happen? Well, a certain investigation would have to disappear, I imagine. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think it's not a flip answer because all the stuff that President Trump talked about in terms of improving relationships with Russia is basically on hold because of the political dynamics, among right. anything else. Let's even leave that aside. I mean, you also have uh, the conflict in Syria, right, where the U.S., uh, even today, with this really kind of disturbing news about uh, crematoriums in Syria, the, you had a, a State Department official, you know, accusing Russia of tolerating, uh, as they said, Syrian atrocities. So, I mean, like you, that is yet one more, quite literally, a battleground where the U.S. and Russia kind of end up meeting. You've also had, you know, Russia was supposed to be in charge of enforcing uh, Syria's disposal of its chemical weapons. Uh, we now know that they didn't dispose of all of them or they reconstituted chemical weapons. And you have the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, saying Russia is either incompetent in policing that agreement or uh, complicit in, in Syria's actions. So it, there's been lots of bad blood. Obviously, there's, the, the United States is still unhappy and the international community in, in general are still unhappy with Russia's annexation of Crimea, the illegal uh, in the eyes of the international community, annexation of Crimea. And so since there, all the this is not yeah. just a personality clash between right. Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, or before that, Barack Obama and Vladimir Putin. There are there are real strategic differences between these countries. And the most immediate thing that Russia would want in terms of a softening would be the U.S. lifting massive ex- economic sanctions in place. And One not only imagine, is yeah. that, yeah, that's not only untenable politically, but that's something that there's wide bipartisan support to keeping those in place in Congress right now. So. Carol, it seems like it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, last question is about health care. It's from Natalie in Fort Worth, Texas. Of course, she says, howdy, NPR politics crew. Help me understand something. We have heard a ton of talk and have seen a health care bill come forward from the Republicans in Congress. However, I'm wondering whether the Democrats have tried crafting a bill that would repair Obamacare. If Obamacare is so popular right now, wouldn't it make sense for Democrats to go public with a plan to make it better that would serve as a competitor to the Republicans' ACHA bill. Thanks for enlightening me. Love the show. Natalie Fort Worth. You know, certainly there are fixes that the Democrats could offer up, uh, things to strengthen, for example, the individual mandate. That might mean uh, a bigger stick, a bigger penalty for people who don't sign up for health insurance, or more carrots in the form of more generous subsidies to encourage people to sign up for health insurance. Uh, the challenge here, you know, with, with Obamacare and the reason we've seen rising insurance premiums and other challenges is that the the pool of people signing up for individual insurance in the Obamacare exchanges has just not been big enough, young enough, healthy enough uh, to, to make that pencil out the way it should. And that is a correctable problem. I mean, the reason you haven't seen those kinds of increases, for example, in workplace insurance policies, that is policies you get from your employer, is because it's a bigger a bigger pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you could get more people into the tent, uh, it, it would work better. And there are certainly sort of technical fixes around the edges that one could do to do that. The reason you haven't seen it from the Democrats, I think, is they're, they're in the minority and they're not going to be able to pass it politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were not able to do it 
during the time when Obama was in office. They're certainly not going to get it done when, when Trump is in office. And their feeling is, look, if you guys Republicans are so set on undermining Obamacare, it's on you now. Right. One other big problem that Obamacare is having right now is many parts of the country where there is only one insurer left. Uh, in the great state of Iowa, for example, there was recently news that they could soon go from three insurers down to one or even zero as of next year. And we've seen that sort of thing happen in many other parts of the nation. Uh, by some recent numbers, you have one in five people in the exchanges who are in counties where they only have one insurer. And to tack on to what Scott said, yeah, I mean, when I read this question, I first thought of that ACHA vote where you heard Democrats singing, you know, na, 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 na. Actually, na, sing na, it, na, sing it. Hey, 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 goodbye. Thank you. You sang it. I feel like myself included, everybody who like talked about this on the news were like, they said, na, 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 hey, hey, good. You, you went for it. You I are absolutely that. welcome. But yeah, I, I mean, the, I think you do have to do the wave, you wave your hand back and forth <laughs> up in slow motion. So, I mean, there was a sort of, they're willing to sit back and watch Republicans kind of, uh, really hurt themselves by passing this bill that they seem to really like. This is why there's a lot of frustration in the country, though, because you have you do have real challenges for the Obamacare exchanges. They are probably fixable challenges. Right. But rather than come up with some fixes, you have both parties trying to score political points. Totally, yeah. So, like, policy-wise, there are changes to make, but politics dictate that nobody is willing to step up and actually make them. All right, we are moving on to the most important question of the day. Oh, and we, we have to ask good. you this. Yes. You, uh, should, you should ask. Okay. All right. <laughs> last question this week comes from Jerry in California. He wrote in response to a discussion that was on last week's Weekly Roundup. I listened to that myself, and I was a little baffled myself on this. He So Jerry asks, Scott Detrell mentioned a restaurant referred to as Wawa. What is that? Now, I know what Wawa is, but I was kind of baffled by the... Yes. The so much more than a restaurant. By how much people seem to latch on to gas stations out here. Well, you're from Iowa, Scott. You're from Colorado. I grew up mostly in New Jersey, so uh-huh. I'll take over from here. Let's hear it. I will say first of all, a couple of weeks ago, we were shocked to see how much of a stir the question of who invented man flight led to in terms of tweets and emails and responses. Not as simple as you'd think, Scott. (laughs) But if you think who invented the airplane is bad, try weighing in on regional convenience store rivalries. A quick recap. I was in South Jersey last week. I mentioned on the pod how I had made multiple Wawa visits. What is a Wawa? It is a regional convenience store located along the East Coast, but I would say its spiritual center is southern New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. Spiritual it has, Center, And Spiritual yes. Center is yes. right, because this, yes. is, this is more than just a regional convenience store. Apparently. This has a faithful following that rivals any religion. Wawa is a way of life. You've got gas. You've got above-average coffee. You've got excellent hoagies. A wide selection of drinks. You know, they have, they have mozzarella sticks. They've got lots of things. However, you may have a Wawa near you, or you may live in a Casey's part of America, or a Quick Trip, or a Come and Go, or a Turkey Hill, or an AMPM, or a Speedway, or a Circle K. Danielle mentioned to us uh, a chain I didn't know existed called... Pump and Munch. Pump and Munch. So, many choices, but if you live in Pennsylvania, on the western part of the state, you have a chain called Sheets, and Wawa and Sheets have a beef with each other. I said in the pod that I prefer Sheets. And I do. I lived in central Pennsylvania Ooh, for several years. Words. And it was, yeah. Controversy ensued. I put up a Twitter poll over the weekend. 1,200 people voted in it. And the results, do you want to guess the results before I, I share them? I, I think it's just telling that 1,200 people felt 
impelled to weigh in on well, region. That tells you it's more than just a regional convenience store. I, I, yeah. feel, I feel like there's a twinge of irritation in your voice. I'm going to guess that Wawa won. You're right. Now, I like Wawa. I just like Sheets more. But Wawa won by a 62% to 38% margin. Okay, wow. Well, that, I have a that's, question. That's like Macron. <laughs> <laughs> Sheets is not Marine Le Pen here. Okay, that, well, that is a big margin, though. That is, that is, and this is. <laughs> Wait, I have a question for Scott Horsley here, though. Like, I have been, like I said, a little baffled to hear people around the newsroom show genuine emotion, like real full body emotion about this, like Wawa versus Sheets. So, like. Scott, out in California, are there rivalries? Like, between Casey's and Quick Trip in Iowa, you just kind of go to whatever is nearest. If there is this kind of devotion in California, I'm I'm not aware of it. Right. And, and in my home state of Colorado, I, I don't believe there was... Nobody had that sort of loyalty to... AM, PM, or the Seven Eleven, but but I you just get your gas and move on with but, your life. But having but having traveled in these corridors, I I do know well that the the uh, people the, care the Wawa the Wawa Sheets rivalry. Mm-hmm. If we missed your favorite convenience store in our honor roll of regional convenience stores, right there, please let us know. Nothing could be more important than that. Um, we are going to wrap it right there on that topic for today. We'll be back in your feed in a few days with our weekly roundup. In the meantime, you can keep up with all of this on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're NPR Politics at all of those. And as always, you can support the podcast by supporting your local public radio station at the link in our episode information. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress for NPR. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Scott Horsley. I cover the White House. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.